You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. The top kids franchise in the world. Go. Ooh. I want to say Dora the Explorer. No. <laughs> I know that's wrong. Let me give you a clue. It was the year of the 1940s. Ooh, that All doesn't right. help. <laughs> the inventor's name was Uli. Also doesn't help. <laughs> His middle name was Kirk. Come on, man. Okay, getting warmer, getting warmer. Yes, come on. He was a carpenter. What do you have in your house? You've got tons of little kids running around. I mean, we have all kinds of things. Right now, my oldest daughter, her favorite thing is Legos. It is Legos. Hey. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, it was nice. invented by Uli Christiansen in the 1940s and is currently valued at $4.6 billion. It was actually valued in 2013. Wow. And it's owned by Mattel and Hasbro, as we know. Well, today we're going to be talking about something kids-related. But before we do, we're recording this on the eve of the 4th of July, and I assume you guys are going to be staying at home. Yeah, yes. I mean, we'd probably be staying at home anyways, but here in California... We'll be staying at home for the next three weeks at least. Yeah, they just kind of shut some things back down. So everybody out there, it might be controversial. I don't know why it is, but wear that mask. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah, it's become very political, this whole pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Which is what you told me the other day when you said that cancer is not political. That's so true, right. right? I don't know why this has become such a sticking point for people to protect themselves and people around them. Yes, but, it's a very simple thing to do. But we don't want to lose half our listenership, so let's not talk about <laughs> the pandemic or anything political. Let's move on. Yeah, so we are going to be talking about something super interesting today. We're going to be talking about the laws and the ethics of marketing to children. Yeah. And that's something near and dear to both our hearts because we've got kids ranging from four to 11, all five of them. It's kind of crazy when we get together, which hasn't happened in four months. Yeah, it's been too long. And we own an agency, so we do a lot of marketing. So I think today will be, it's a little bit different than what we usually do. We usually cover a brand and a comeback and a network campaign. Yep. But this is super interesting for any parent or any marketer. And I think that's a massive section of the population. So a couple of episodes back, we did a episode about Juul. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't listened to the episode about Juul, Juul marketed their products, which were intended for active smokers and trying to get them to switch from cigarettes to a supposedly less harmful nicotine delivery mechanism. Well, at least that's what they said. That's what they said. But what they did was entirely different and right. actually marketed it to kids as young as eight. So that really kind of prompted us to think about, geez, are there other situations where this is happening? And of course there are. So let's talk a little bit about what that means and how we should think about it. Yes. And so today in this episode, we're going to be going a little bit deeper into this phenomenon and then also the ethics of marketing to kids. And as we start talking about it, we're basically asking ourselves, what exactly are the rules internationally? Because I think it's important to look outside just the US as well, yep. of how companies can and can't market to children. And then what are the ethics in this? So now that we know the rules, what's ethical? Like how can we do this right, if at all? 
marketing to kids. Right. Before we even started doing the research on this, I've got a pretty strong opinion, which I'm sure will come out today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point. So <laughs> that's good. Let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with the basics. What are the rules? How can advertised market products made for kids? Yeah. So obviously it differs from country to country, right? And from industry to industry. And not only are there widely different rules in different countries, many of them have changed over the years. So in Great Britain, Greece, Belgium, and Denmark, advertising to children is restricted in some ways, but not prohibited. Norway, Sweden, and the Canadian province of Quebec quite specifically. We had to throw that one in there. <laughs> yes. Have passed laws against marketing to children under the age of 12. But in 2010, Sweden repealed their law against marketing to children as part of sweeping legislation that opened up more avenues to advertisers. So the European Union has also had a couple of different standards. In the early 1990s, the EU adopted the Television Without Frontiers Directive, which did things like prohibit pornography and inappropriate materials from being shown during certain hours when kids were likely to be watching. In the U.S., we have some similar rules with prime time. There are certain hours of the day where the type of content that you can show is limited, the type of language that you can use and things that you can portray are limited during those, those time periods where kids are, are likely to be watching. In 2009... The Television Without Frontiers Directive was replaced by the EU Audiovisual Media Services Directive, and that stated, among other regulations, that advertising cannot cause moral or physical detriment to minors and shall therefore comply with the following criteria for their protection. Yeah, and this is very technical, but I think it's important. I'm just going to list it off as they lined it out. It shall not directly exhort minors to buy a product or a service by exploiting their inexperience, which that shouldn't be explicitly called out, but I suppose they have to. <laughs> it shall not directly encourage minors to persuade their parents or others to purchase goods or services being advertised. That's a tough one. That one's kind of a little bit tricky, don't you think? Because it is, because if any kids see anything, they want it. So that's why we should just not be marketing to kids. And also, if a child sees something and wants it, from my perspective, I would want that kid to come and talk to me about it. But what I wouldn't want is a form of inception that kind of like tries to get them to say, hey, you know, Go convince your, your parents, parents yeah. right? Like. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of tricky. It shall not exploit the special trusts minors placed in parents, teachers, or other persons, mm -hmm. which just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It shall not unreasonably show minors in dangerous situations. Children's programming may only be interrupted if a scheduled duration is no longer than 30 minutes. Product placement is not allowed in children's programs. And then lastly, the member states and the commission shall encourage audiovisual media services to develop codes of conduct regarding the advertising of certain foods in children's programs. And then in Australia, they have adopted rules to, quote, ensure that advertising and marketers develop and maintain a high sense of social responsibility in advertising and marketing to children in Australia. And that's according to the AANA in 2009. And these rules are designed to balance, why don't you talk us through the Australian rules? 
Yep. So the Australian rules say that they're trying to balance public interest concerns, the children's special viewing needs are met, and they are protected from possible harmful effects of television. The commercial TV industry's reliance upon advertising revenue and the need to fund quality programs for children, and the child audience's lack of earning or buying capacity reflected in the limited range of product categories in advertising to children, and also in children's reliance on others, parents most often, to obtain products they might see advertised on TV. And some of the things that were listed here are pretty different than how it is in the U.S. For example, that directive for the EU that children's programs can only be interrupted if the scheduled duration is longer than 30 minutes. minutes yeah. That's not how it is. I mean, I remember growing up, Saturday morning cartoons was like this big thing in the 80s. And they were packed with commercials about Tony the Tiger, Frosted Flakes, and G.I. Joe's, and just about anything you could imagine for kids. And even today, still, if you have cable TV and you're on Nickelodeon or you're on Cartoon Network or whatever it is, you're still going to get commercial interruptions. That's part of the problem. In the U.S., they had laws, but they weren't necessarily governed or policed as well. So between the mm. 1940s and 1980s, advertisements to children were limited by the FCC. They weren't really policed by the FCC. They were policed by a group called ACTS, which is Actions of Children's Television. And this was an independent group, and they actually had a number of about 20,000 members. And they did things like threaten to report the show like Rumpers Room to the FCC for violating when they marketed their own line of toys endorsed by the hosts. And in the 1980s, ads were flourishing thanks to the Reagan administration, which disliked the regulation of any kind. So many shows, including Hot Wheels series, Pac-Man cartoons, or He-Man, Masters of the Universe, were basically a full-length commercial. And they were produced by toy manufacturers that were marketing this product line to kids through like a 45-minute infomercial. Yeah, and so for me... That's just it, right? Yes, growing up in the U.S., in that environment, that's basically how everything was. And I, I think about like, even as an adult now, every kind of toy or entertainment type of interest that I have is geared to something very commercially oriented, whether it's Marvel comics and the Marvel movies. Regardless, whatever content kids are consuming, there's always some sort of like product attached to that, whether it's the content itself or some sort of toy or experience that kind of dovetails off of that. So cultural historian Tom Engelhart states that between the years of 1984 and 85, cartoons featuring licensed characters increased by over 300%. Wow. By the end of 1985, there were more than 40 animated series with tie-ins to licensed products or campaigns. And I mean, who of us hasn't bought their daughter a Disney princess? I haven't pajamas, I've not. their kid, a Batman or a Captain America t-shirt or toy, right? Like no, it's right. everywhere and it's for all of us. So as a result, millions of action figures start selling in the eighties, you know, everything from some of my favorites, like 
Transformers and Batman, and then of course things like My Little Pony were sold to kids through those years, and the shows were some of the most popular in TV history because you can kind of like experience the show yeah. through play. Yeah, and they so, play with it afterwards. I mean, right. our little daughter plays with her little ponies right now because she's seen one or two shows and. She lives the characters. Right. Right. Anna and Elsa from Frozen. Oh, it's like a constant yeah. in our house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in 1990, the Children's TV Act was passed, which tightened the rules on advertising to kids. The act not only tightened rules, but it also mandated the creation of educational programming for kids as part of broadcasters' license renewals. Interesting. Yeah, so the Children's Television Act also called for the Secretary of Education to establish a national endowment to help support the production of educational children's programming. Yeah, so in 1996, the act was strengthened, making reports on progress mandatory. So think about it. We started in the 1940s year, and now yeah. in 1996 only, they need to start reporting on us, which mm. is kind of late to the game, right? It was mandatory in a station's public files, so anybody had access to it. And setting more concrete and specific guidelines for the hours of educational programming produced and the limits on advertising during times kids were likely to be watching. And then in 2006, it was again revised to account for the advent of digital broadcasting. So this is when digital started taking off. Broadcasters, including NBC Universal, Viacom, and ironically, Disney, sued the mm -hmm. FCC over the changes, claiming that they were violations of free speech, but they were ultimately implemented in October of that year, 2006. And in 2019, the rules were actually updated again, largely to account for the new landscape of digital and online programming. Saying that the existing rules were outdated, FCC Commissioner Michael O'Reilly proposed changes that diluted many of the protections, including allowing broadcasters to move the bulk of their children's educational programming to digital subchannels, removing requirements for the length of educational programming, and that they be regularly scheduled, replacing quarterly reporting with annual reporting on compliance, etc. And I think digital is probably even more problematic by orders of magnitude greater than kind of traditional broadcast TV because of just how native it can be and how deceptive and how difficult to monitor. Or to regulate for that matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very difficult to report on, to follow up on. And so that's all just mostly about programming that we've talked about. But what about the rules for actually marketing in the United States? Yeah, so the United States simply has not kept up for the rest of the world in terms of the implementation of science-based standards for marketing to kids. Yeah. You know, many other countries have taken a lot of steps. Yeah, for example, banning fast food marketing to kids under the age of 13, restricting ads aimed at children for foods that are like really high in calories, sugar, Fructose, yeah. yeah, candy, treats, all of that kind of stuff, banning the use of cartoons or toys to market unhealthy foods, which we market a ton out of. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why there's a massive obesity pandemic. Yeah, and then also requiring educational labels on ads for unhealthy foods. Yeah, most of the controversy around marketing to kids centers around health, nutrition, and obesity, like we just mm. discussed. In 2010, the WHO, the World Health Organization, specifically called on member nations to reduce the impact of marketing of foods high in saturated fats, sugar, salts, 
to children. I mean, it's it just, again, why would we be doing this to begin with? <laughs> right. Well, capitalism. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so the landscape has changed dramatically, right, since the last century with online advertising making up more of what a kid sees. And like we said a minute ago, it's just so much harder to regulate and police this combination of internet marketing channels and global obesity have created a huge problem. So in an article in the journal Young Consumers, the problem is summed up, quote, most food products marketed to children online are obesity causing and childhood obesity has grown to epidemic proportions with harmful effects on society. Marketers use creative methods to engage children online, entertaining them, offering rewards and promoting products through interactive activities. Online media is monitored much less than conventional media, and little is known about online marketing of food to children. I think for my own experience, you know, I won't get into the details out of respect for my daughter, but there was a situation with one of our kids where there was marketing that was being done in a kid's app that was wildly, just absolutely, completely inappropriate. Mm. And that led the kids to click into that and to get into a bunch of content. Yeah, that they shouldn't have. That they absolutely yeah. should have had zero exposure to adult content, essentially. Yeah, and that was done through a Apple App Store, which you would never, ever, ever assume that would even be possible. Yeah, and an ad a in a kid's app. Yeah, right. right? right. Yes. So it literally led to us removing all access to devices for the kids without direct supervision. Well, that's the problem, right? We have these laws and regulations, but they're just not implemented and they're not policed right now, which just makes it, that's a great example of how dangerous it can be. Yeah. And so parents and regulators, I mean, pretty much everyone, we're, we're all just like scrambling to keep up with this. Yeah. And that shouldn't really be the case, right? So not only is direct marketing to kids as big as a problem as it's ever been, the ways in which online marketing tracks the user's behavior across all multiple platforms right. is just borderline sometimes a little bit creepy, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's hyper-targeted ads to children, to your point right now. And that actually makes me think we should do an episode on online tracking and when it works and when it doesn't work, similar to this format we're doing today. Yeah. I think it might be a really good, interesting episode to do too. But anyway, in 2019, two senators proposed legislation that would ban ads targeted towards kids across online platforms. And that's last year, just put it in perspective, because <laughs> it's 2019, right? And it gives parents what they called an eraser button that removes all tracking data about their children's online habits. Senators Ed Markley of Massachusetts and Josh Howley of Missouri proposed changes to COPA. And COPA is the Children Online Privacy Protection Act that would define a set of parental controls and ban targeted advertising to young minors. So the bill cited an FTC fine for TikTok's parent company for $5.7 million for collecting the personal data of children under 13 without receiving the consent of their parents. It's just crazy. The bill would increase current protections from 13 to 15 years old and prohibit serving targeted ads for kids under 13. The bill is actually still under review in the Senate. It's interesting to me that they only made it to 15 and not 18 or 21, right? Because you're still a minor at 15. You're not making money. You don't make purchase decisions. You're not a true, full-fledged 
consumer yet. You are, but you're not paying your way. Yeah. Well, I mean, to an extent, it's like butting right up against that time when I, I believe 15 and a half is when you can get a like a learning permit yeah. for both a driver's license and a job. Yeah. And then technically you can start working at 16 and start having your own money. So it's kind of like right up against that time zone where where people can kind of start making their own spending decisions. And certainly, you know, younger children have allowances and birthday money and things that they can choose to spend their money on, but that doesn't necessarily follow that you should then be heavily marketing to them right. because of the ethical considerations. So there are some that say that online viewing is saving kids from the perils of marketing, digital streaming like Netflix, where there's no commercials. It's just you pay a subscription and, and off you go with your content. And a report in 2016 claimed that watching programming from internet streaming services has saved children of the 2010s from 150 hours of commercials every year. So that's pretty significant. Wow. Yeah, but what they might be missing in ads is being made up and far exceeded within yes. the programming itself, right? So where once they were toy commercials, now kids are watching unboxing videos on YouTube or toy reviews. My kids watch a ton of them. We've been like trying to be Nazis about not doing it with our children because I'm, I'm scared it's going to be like this vortex they're going to get sucked into. <laughs> yeah. Like... You're watching makeup tutorials and beauty routine videos from influencers who often get paid six-figure endorsement checks to endorse these products on videos. And often without being obvious, the kids are watching these, right? So mm -hmm. there's a very popular YouTube channel called Ryan's World, which is a eight-year-old boy that unboxes these videos and he has 23 million subscribers. And he's extremely high paid. He's one of the highest. In fact, I think if I remember correctly, he's the highest paid YouTuber of all YouTubers and makes about $20 million a year. Eight-year-old boy. Pretty <laughs> amazing. YouTube has taken steps in the past year. They've actually taken some pretty significant steps in the past year to limit the access kids have to programming that's not for children. So they've banned advertising against children's videos, which a lot of YouTube creators kind of got like totally up in arms about people like the Ryan's world types that would lose a ton of revenue because you can't have ads anymore for kids. So they also made producers check boxes explicitly stating if the programming is for kids and they've barred certain amounts of paid product promotion from videos that target kids. But that's only if kids are logged into YouTube kids, right. into the kids profile. And most of the time, that's not what happens. They get on under their parents' account or a brother or sister's account. There's no way at all to verify it. Okay, so that's the first half of today's episode. That's, that's <laughs> the legality. That's the... Act one. Act one, right. <laughs> That's what the laws prescribe advertisers and marketers to do. So yeah. let's shift the focus now. Far from when or how we might be advertising to kids, let's take a look at whether we should be allowed to do so. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, right, like, let's just call a spade a spade. Advertising, even if you're advertising something good and positive, right, it's still inherently manipulative 
in a sense. And non-marketers will debate that, but marketers know that. <laughs> yes, we all know that yeah. what you're trying to do is get somebody to, to do, do something, something, to either change their behavior in some sort of way, perceive something differently, buy a certain product. But the problem is, is that in marketing, we assume that our audience has their own critical thinking capabilities, that they can make decisions about whether those actions are good or healthy or safe for them. But kids just don't have those critical thinking skills and capabilities, just hasn't developed in their brains yet. They don't have life perspective. They can't judge for themselves. So how could it ever be ethical to provide potentially manipulative message to someone who doesn't have the cognitive ability to judge and assess that message, its merits, and its basis in reality. Absolutely. And there's a lot of research on the impacts of advertising to children, right? This is not an unresearched space that we're talking about. <laughs> we may have the best intentions when you do this, but without understanding what advertising does to a child's brain, even the best intended campaign can have negative impact. Stop marketing to kids.ca is a Canadian website has some really cool insights on this. Children are uniquely vulnerable to marketing. And they go on to say, before the age of five, most children cannot distinguish ads from unbiased programming. I know that very well because mm -hmm. I live with a five-year-old. Yeah. I mean, they're like impulsive, <laughs> right? They like they totally. latch on to the smallest little thing. Children under the age of eight do not understand the intent of marketing messaging and they believe what they see. Right. And by the age of 10 to 12, children understand they are seeing ads that's designed to sell products to them, but they are not always able to be critical of these ads. So they're still very, very much influenced by it. Yeah. And teens, of course, are still also vulnerable. Of course, they have increased cognitive sophistication, but they're also uniquely susceptible to marketing due to hormonal effects on the developing brain and the fact that adolescent brains kind of prioritize risk-seeking behaviors right. in order to kind of like gain independence. So that rational decision-making region of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is still developing and still trying to rightly push boundaries and find out where those limits are. And that's a dangerous combination when you add purposefully manipulative advertising messages into the mix. These factors that you're talking about can make marketing particularly effective to kids. Think about it, right? It's like you've got an audience here that you can truly manipulate. Right. But that is the dark side and it can result in very negative behavior that lasts far into their lives in the later stage. You're not just marketing a product, you're having an impact on who that person is at that impressionable age. If you think about it, what they think is right and acceptable, yep. what they think and feel about themselves, what they want to feel about life and what they want to strive for, this is all a very powerful medium and the effects can be long lasting. The things that they're exposed to right now stays with them for the years to come. Yeah, That includes marketing and includes marketing messaging and includes campaign slogans and everything else. You know, it's obvious today, but children simply don't have the critical thinking to your point earlier or judgment that we have as an adult. Yeah, and so according to organizations like the American Psychological Association and the National Institutes of Health, 
Advertising has been shown to greatly influence the child's body image and sexual development, of course, because there's a lot of attitudes, how you see people interact around those types of things, around body image, has an impact on how you think about it. So children feel the influence of advertising messages more strongly than those provided by schools, by parents, because they're persuasive, they're entertaining, they're designed to be persuasive and entertaining. So child development specialists argue that advertising has taken a disastrous turn as far as the welfare of children are concerned. And in particular, the use of psychology in the marketing of products to children. So that can be a double-edged sword because you can leverage that child's psychology into even more manipulative tactics for how you advertise to kids. But in the onset, it's wrong because when we market, we do research, right? And we try to get into the minds of our target audience. Right. We figure out what type of messages is going to provoke that action we want him to take. Yes. So that's the core of marketing. Yes. So that's why this is a problem because it's not you can change the fundamental mechanics of marketing when you market to kids because then it's no longer marketing. Right, if you think about it. <laughs> right. We found something here in the countyhealthrankings.org, which really, really shocked me. It was a study by the Obesity Health Alliance that showed that watching just 4.4 minutes of food advertising, so the amount often you see in an episode of Britain's Got Talent or any other program, is associated with children eating 60 more calories per day. Just think about that. Just being exposed to advertising with food on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whenever I watch an episode of Chopped, immediately I'm like, what am I going to make? And like we've talked about with digital apps designed for preschoolers are filled with manipulating advertising. Yeah, another study, I think it was at the University of Michigan that was cited on Vox.com. They looked at exactly how many ads make their way into kids' games and what the advertising strategies might be for these campaigns. So they analyzed 135 children's apps, which is a lot, many of which are popular ones in Google Play Store and the Apple Store. And they found that 95% of all the games had at least one ad, Mm. 95%. And many of these ads were pushed to younger players to buy or upgrade within the game. Yeah, And here's the thing that's really shocking. Many of the ads were designed to look as part of the game. The 10-year-old or the 8-year-old is playing the game and they get a pop-up to upgrade and that's an actual ad that is a financial transaction that happens. Yes. And these kids can't tell the difference. They don't know if they're playing the game and they don't know if they're interacting with an ad. Right. Yeah, I mean, we've all heard so many stories about kids racking up $200 worth of, of, of bills on the Google Play Store because they made a bunch of in-game, in-app purchases to upgrade their farm in Farmville. (laughs) But this study goes on to say that the problem lies in kids' inability to differentiate between the ad in the game and the game itself. Quoted in an article in Vox, the study finds that children, quote, lack a meta-awareness about advertising and are unable to critically reflect upon their reactions to it. When advertisements are combined with rewards, both cognitive and emotional processes respond to persuasion. In case of the gamified ads we documented, those involving watching ads to collect tokens or gameplay items, children under six years may be especially susceptible to this approach because of their 
responsiveness to positive reinforcers at that developmental stage. Yeah, and that's why gamification is what it is today. Right. If you think about it, there's a really good video that we found that we'll throw in the show notes, and it's about how advertising rewires a kid's brain. And in short, it's kids learn that buying stuff equals happiness, right? Think about it when they go running to the store and they've got their $5 and they want to go buy something, it makes them happy. And the main impact on advertising to kids include kids that watch advertising are more likely to say what they want to be rich and famous when they grow up. More materialistic kids reported lower levels of happiness. I just had this conversation with my little boy this morning. And materialistic kids have a lower academic performance related with the fact that they are more concerned about appearing successful. Mm. It's really sad. It is. And they use a nice example of when asked what kids would do if they would win a lottery, materialistic kids rarely say that they would use that money to help others. To your point, we have this conversation in our house all the time, even just subtle little things that the kids will say like, oh man, I want to be a billionaire. Yeah. And I'll say, do you? Let's really think about that. Let's unpack that. What does that mean to be a billionaire? And what do you have to do to become a billionaire? You have to hoard such an incredibly large amount of money that there's inherently an immoral, unethical component of just simply being a billionaire. So we just kind of unpack and talk about those types of things all the time. They're less likely to recycle and care about the environment. Ads are also harming their bodies. So 98% of ads for kids are unhealthy food related. Black and Hispanic kids are exposed to twice as much junk food marketing as their white peers. And there's just so many other impacts from self-esteem to sexual identity, body consciousness, having the right social behaviors, violence between children. Eating disorders. Yeah. And just your ability to understand the world for what it really is, both positively and negatively, and understand that, for example... The bad guys in TV shows don't just laugh and give up. Like, that's not how things work in real life. Yeah. Susan Lynn, director of campaign for Commercial Free Child, is a great quote of her. Advertising in itself is harmful to children. So marketing target emotions, not intellect. And she wanted to say it trains children to choose products, not for what the actual value of the product is, but because of celebrity or what's on the package, right? So they associate not the value of the product. They're more into the surrounding marketing of it. So now that we've beaten that up completely, (laughs) how do we market ethically to children then when they're involved? Is that even possible? So that's a great question. And I think like most things in life, it's not quite as black and white as it would seem, and it's more shades of gray. And the example that I want to bring out to demonstrate that is, as a kid growing up, one of my favorite TV shows was Reading Rainbow. And for those of you who didn't grow up in the US and didn't grow up in the 80s, Reading Rainbow is this amazing show by a guy named LeVar Burton who wanted to help kids just gain a love for reading because he knew how many positive impacts and how much value that would have on on kids' lives. And so the show, the way the show works is 
it starts out and every episode, LeVar Burton kind of introduces the theme for the episode and then they read a children's book and they recommend that children's book. And then they go and have some sort of educational experience. And I remember this one episode very like vividly. It was about how crayons are made. It was very educational, but that was an advertisement. You go to the factory and you see how Crayola makes their crayons. Right. And that's an advertisement, but it's also educational. And then they read another story and they also have a section of the show that there's kids that do their own kind of like recommendations of what books they like, which is an advertisement for those books, for those authors who are going to make money off of the sales of those books. So you can argue that's marketing, it's terrible, it's manipulative, but it's also one of the things that I credit for my positive development, my love of learning, my love of reading. And there are so many positive aspects of my life that I actually attribute to that one particular series, Reading Rainbow. I can still remember the, the jingle yeah, in, yeah. in my head, right? But it is a slippery slope though, right? Because if you allow marketing to kids, somebody's going to take advantage of it. That's the problem. Right. So I think this is a double edged sword. Yeah. I think there are a few key takeouts that we can keep in mind when you do this. First of all, from my perspective, speak to the parents, not the kids. Ultimately, the parents are going to make the purchase decisions. Don't shortcut parents and try to manipulate kids. What you just described didn't sound like they were trying to manipulate you to go and do something. The core program was around reading and they try to make it interesting. Make sure the parents know about the product and its benefits and make safety features and privacy features obvious and super transparent. Yeah, and it's really important, I think, with that to take the long-term view. What is the impact that this is going to have? Not that if you hook them now, you'll have them forever, like the cigarette companies and Jewel did. Jewel, yeah. But if you build trust with parents and kids now, you'll win loyalty in the future. Really, kids impact parents' purchasing decisions. That's just a fact, right? Like when your kids tug on your arm and want to go to their favorite restaurant or whatever, we all know that they impact our purchasing decisions. But parents also impact kids' behaviors and tastes drastically, right? So if a parent believes a brand is one they don't have to consistently avoid or be cautious of, they're going to trust that brand in the future. And building that trust through ethical marketing, you'll reap the rewards for years to come. Now, you could also argue that that's kind of manipulative too. And I think that's one part that is inherent is that there is no escaping marketing. It's one of the common themes that we talk about on our podcast episodes that we've seen in multiple scenarios play out that marketing is so widespread, there's just no way to avoid it. So how do we deal with it in a positive way? Yeah. And then the final thought for me is like, don't assume that you know, involve professionals, bring child psychologists yeah. into the marketing research. And this is not to manipulate the kids, but it's to ensure that you're doing them no harm. Follow the guidelines that's laid out by Congress and then take it a step further and involve professional people that understand the way kids' brains work and try to do no harm for them. Yep. Basically, be a good human. Well, that goes a long way these days, right? <laughs> it does. All right, let's wrap it up. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you guys next week. 
you've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.